here uh, in worship, and if you're in our overflow room, if you're watching us online, uh, thank you for being here as well. And parents, I realize this is a family Sunday, and there are children in here who are normally in the kids' area getting to listen to Pastor Will, and it's a lot harder to listen to Pastor Kevin. I understand that, and so here's my promise. I am going to try to go um, shorter today and, and go ahead and get you out. So on June 7th, 1776, a man named Richard Henry Lee, who is a delegate from Virginia to the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia, proposed a motion that read in part that they, the colonies, are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. That motion was tabled, but a study committee was put together to not only study the motion, but also to begin to draft a document that would officially declare independence from Great Britain. The Continental Congress met again on July 1st. The next day, July 2nd, they officially passed the motion from Richard Henry Lee to separate from Great Britain, declaring their independence. And on July 4th, 1776, they signed that particular document that had been drafted that we now call the Declaration of Independence. However, for many of those who are gathered there, they believed that the official Declaration of Independence happened on July 2nd, 1776, not July 4th, 1776. One of those was John Adams, who wrote to his wife Abigail that July 2nd will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival and that the celebration should include pomp and parade, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. In fact, for the remainder of his days, he held to July 2nd as the day that America's independence should be celebrated. He lived for another 50 years and turned down numerous invitations to July 4th events because that was not the correct day. However, Ironically, he died on July 4th, 1826, <laughs> the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We know that in all, 56 men signed that document, uh, putting at risk their lives and their fortunes, knowing that if they lost to Great Britain, that they would be hanged as traitors. Of course, we all know the end of the story, that they were not declared to be traitors or hanged as traitors, that Rather, instead, they have left us today a legacy of freedom, one that we will celebrate with pomp and parade, uh, but much to the dismay of John Adams, we will celebrate that tomorrow uh, instead of yesterday. Here's why I bring all of this up. Today, we are concluding uh, our series called Sins and Stones on the Life of King David. King David was the second and most famous king over Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ about 3,000 years ago, and today we are getting to the end of his life. And specifically, the legacy that he leaves to his son and to succeeding generations. If you've got a Bible with you, we are going to be reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles is in your Old Testament, uh, just before 2 Chronicles and right after 2 Kings. And this, just to set this passage up, is at the end of David's days. Um, he, he knows that, that his time on this earth is almost over. 
Um, and so he gathers all of Israel together. David at this point is about 70 years old. Um, for some of you in here, that sounds old. For some of you in here, that sounds young. It all depends on your vantage point. Um, in that day, 70 years was considered to be a long life. So David is at the end of his days. And he gathers all of Israel together, all the leaders of Israel, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is he wants Israel to know that his son Solomon will succeed him as king. In fact, when you back up to chapter 28, he says exactly that. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So he makes it clear to Israel that the son to succeed him as king is Solomon. The second reason he gathers Israel is to talk about and raise money for the construction of the temple. In the next verse, he makes that clear. He said to me, the Lord said to David, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. This was the temple. David wanted to build the temple. He asked the Lord to build the temple, but the Lord would not allow David to do it because of the sin of David, specifically the sin that David committed where he murdered a man named Uriah. Because of the bloodshed that David committed, the Lord said, you are not allowed to build my temple. However, your son can build it. David put together the plans, what we would call the blueprints. He put all of that together and he gathered Israel together to say, my son will build this temple and here's what I want each of you to do. We need to commit from our own um, treasuries money to make this happen. And so David did that. He gave gold, he gave silver, he asked other leaders to give so that they could construct the temple. Now, when you fast forward a little bit, here's what you discover. Solomon was extremely successful in that project of building the temple. Solomon's temple was considered to be the grandest structure. It stood for 400 years until the Babylonians destroyed that. When Herod rebuilt the temple about the time of Jesus, he modeled it after Solomon's temple. It was this incredible structure. It was this beautiful temple. It was this palatial home for God. When you zoom out from that, from that particular project, here's the other thing that you learn. Solomon had an incredibly successful reign. When succeeding generations looked back on Solomon's reign over Israel, they called it the glory days of Israel. It was Israel's heyday as a nation. They were the most powerful nation around. They were the wealthiest nation around. Solomon was the most respected king around. Other kings and queens would come and sit at his feet to hear his wisdom. Solomon ruled over a long period of peace and prosperity uh, over Israel. So the question is, why? Why was Solomon so successful? Why was the temple such a successful project? Why was his reign over Israel the glory days of Israel? Sure, in part, it was Solomon. God gave Solomon a lot of wisdom, taking nothing away from Solomon. He did a great job. He was a wonderful leader. That was part of it. However, more than that, 
the reason that Solomon was so successful was because that David, his father, was intentional about leaving a spiritual legacy for Solomon that would set him up well as king over Israel. That is exactly what we're talking about today as we conclude this series. Every one of us in this room will leave a legacy. Every one of us in this room will have a day that we breathe our last on this earth and we leave a legacy for the generation that comes behind us. Now, if you're a parent, obviously, the most influence you will have is over your children and over your grandchildren. But even if you're not a parent, you will leave a legacy for the generation and generations that come after you. All of us will leave, leave a legacy. The only question is, what kind of legacy will it be? Will it be a legacy that allows or causes the next generation to seek after God? Or will it be another kind of legacy? We will all leave a legacy. The only question is, what kind of legacy will we leave? Years ago, when I was serving in another church in student ministry, I had a high school student in my group who was uh, on the track team at his school. And he asked me to come and watch his track meet, and I was not really familiar with track. It was not something I did as a teenager. I really didn't understand it very well. I learned quickly that at track meets, there's a lot of waiting. There's a whole lot of downtime. There's a whole lot of just, just sitting there. Um, the other thing I learned is that the most exciting race is what is called the four by four. It's four men or four women, and they're all each running a lap around the track, 400 meters, for a total of 1,600 meters or almost one mile. It's normally reserved for the end of the track meet. It's this exciting event as these runners all race other teams of four-by-four runners trying to see who can get the best time. I did a little research. The world record for the four-by-four race is two minutes and 54.2 seconds. Two minutes and 54 seconds to run a mile is blazing fast. That record was set back in the 90s. It has stood for 25 years. Here's what I learned about the 4x4 race. There are two things that are necessary to win the 4x4 race. One is to have runners that are really fast. That world record that I mentioned on that team was Michael Johnson. Some of you will remember the name Michael Johnson. Back in the late 90s, he won several gold medals at the Olympics. He was considered for a period of time to be the fastest runner in the world. He was on that team. One of the ways you win the 4x4 race is you have really fast runners who run their race well. But that's only one element. The other element of the 4x4 race, if you want to win, is that not only do you run your leg of the race very well, but also you pass the baton well. I saw, especially in high school events, teams that had faster runners, but who lost the race because they did a poor job of passing the baton. If they fumbled the baton, if they dropped the baton, it would cost them precious seconds that very easily could cost them the race. Even if they ran their race well, if they did not pass the baton well, they could lose the race. I think the four by four is a great analogy for life. 
If we want to leave a legacy to the next generation, there are two things we have to do. One, we have to run our race well. We have to run the leg of the race that God has given to us well. And the second thing we have to do is we have to pass the baton well to the next generation. In fact, here's a way to phrase it. A spiritual legacy or any legacy is both taught and caught. In other words, the way you run your race is how the next generation will learn most from you. They will observe your life and they will learn most of the lessons just from observing your life. But there's a second element as well. And that is we have to teach them certain principles. We have to be willing to pass well that baton of faith to the next generation. So what does that look like? The passage that Will read earlier was the first part of a prayer by David as he has Israel gathered before him. Here's the second half of that prayer. I want to read through this prayer and then pull out several principles for passing a good godly legacy on to the next generation. Let's read. This is 1 Chronicles 29, starting with verse 14. David prayed, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? They're giving to the temple. Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. So David says, we're just giving back to you, Lord, for the construction of the temple, what you've already given to us. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. In other words, our days are very limited on this earth. Help us to do well in the time that you've given to us. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. So let's look at four principles that David gives us in this passage on how to pass down a godly legacy. This is on your message map if you've got that with you. How to leave a godly legacy. Number one, model devotion. Notice what David prayed in this prayer. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David was an individual who was absolutely devoted to the Lord. And if you've been here with us over the past three weeks, you understand that that did not mean that David was perfect. In fact, we saw David act with a lot of imperfection, committed the sins of adultery, and then murder to try to cover up that sin. We saw him commit another sin of having a heart full of pride later on. David had episodes where he strayed from the Lord. He had episodes where he made foolish, sinful decisions. But still, after all of that, David was called a man after God's own heart. And when you read through the Psalms, David wrote about half of the Psalms 
When you read through the Psalms, you see that even though he had stumbles and failures, David had a heart that was devoted to the Lord. Here's what that means for us, and especially for parents who we are just doing our best with our children. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that we are always perfect or we always parent perfectly. However, what it does mean is that our children need to see that we are devoted to to the Lord. That even though we make mistakes, even though we fail at times, even though we are not perfect, they need to see in us hearts that are devoted to the Lord. We cannot pass to the next generation a faith that we do not ourselves possess. So the best thing that we can do for the next generation is to seek God with everything that's in us to chase after the Lord so that we can pass down that same legacy to the next generation. Second thing is this, to leave a godly legacy, we need to act with integrity. Notice what David said. He said, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. Again, when you look at the life of David, you notice that he did not always act with integrity. In fact, his episode with Bathsheba and Uriah was with zero integrity. However, David very much recognized that when he did act with integrity, that the Lord rewarded those actions. If we want to pass a godly legacy down to the next generation, we have to act with integrity. We have to demonstrate integrity to our children. I read a story recently by Henry Bosch. Henry Bosch was the founder of Our Daily Bread, this devotional that many people, many of you may have used Our Daily Bread for your own personal quiet time. He told the story of being a young child and going in the summers with his father to work every day. And he said his father would drive past this little little grocery store and he would stop at that grocery store almost every morning and he would buy a newspaper and then they would go on into work. And he said this one particular morning they stopped, he bought a newspaper, he went on into work and he got into his office and he suddenly realized that he had two newspapers instead of one. And he said, well, I'll just pay the guy tomorrow for two. And then he thought, no, I don't, I don't want, what if he saw that I stole, uh, that I took this newspaper? I don't want him to think I stole the newspaper. And so he said, come on, son, get into the car. And they drove back to this little grocery store and he went and he took the newspaper back and he gave it back to the grocer. About a week later, according to Henry Bosch, that particular uh, grocery store was robbed. And when the investigators came, when the police detectives came, they asked the grocer who was in the store. And the grocer only remembered two individuals being in the store. One was Henry's father and another man. And the grocer who did not go to church was not a follower of Christ said, well, I know it wasn't. And he he named Henry's dad. That guy's so honest, he brought back a newspaper that he accidentally took. So the police focused their investigation on the other individual who quickly confessed. And Henry Bosch said that uh, act of taking back that newspaper that he accidentally took made an impression on this non-Christian grocer. But more importantly, it made an impression on me as a little boy. Our children watch us. The next generation watches us. And to pass along a godly legacy, we must act with integrity. Number three is to pray for the next generation. Notice the prayer of of David for his son Solomon. 
He said, and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. David here prays two things for Solomon. One, that Solomon would love the law of God, that he would follow the commands, that he would follow the decrees of God. And the second thing that he prays is that God would give him success in what Solomon put his hands to. Those are two great prayers for your children. To pray, one, that they would love the law of God, that they would see every rule that is in the New Testament, every decree of God as coming from a loving father who wants to protect his children, who wants to protect them from harm, from the consequences of sin, that they would fall in love with the law of God. And secondly, that God would give them success in whatever path God leaves them on, that the Lord would give them success and that they would acknowledge the Lord as the provider of that success. If we want to leave a spiritual legacy, we have to pray for the next generation. And then finally, here's the last thing. Make worship a priority. Notice the end of this prayer of David. After he prays, here's what happens. Then David said to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord the God of their fathers, they bowed down, prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. David made worship a priority. And when you read through the Psalms, you see that that was not just on this particular day, at the end of his days, that David made worship a, a priority. David was an individual who worshiped the Lord over and over and over again. Solomon witnessed this growing up. And so this godly legacy was passed down to Solomon because David made worship a priority. Parents, I get it. In this day and age, Sunday morning is not sacred anymore. When I was growing up, which was not that long ago, things were not scheduled on Sundays. I, I can remember many businesses were closed on Sundays I can remember that no sports activities were scheduled on Sundays. No games, no matches. You might have a coach occasionally who would try to slide in a Sunday afternoon practice, but that was about it. Nothing else happened on Sundays. And now just a, a few short decades later, Sunday's just another day. It's just like Saturday. Just comes before Monday instead of after Friday. Games, matches, activities. And if your child wants to be a part of it, whatever it is, then they've got to commit to Sunday mornings. And the culture is saying to you, if you want to worship, that's fine. Just don't let it get in the way of what's really important. And that is this sport, this match, this activity. Parents, we have to push against that with everything that we've got. It, we don't have to be legalistic about it. I get it. There are times occasionally that you miss, but it needs to be the exception and not the rule. If we want to pass a godly legacy down to the next generation, we have to make worship a priority. Years ago, there was a study that was done of Jonathan Edwards. If you're not familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards, um, he was a Puritan preacher in the early 1700s. Uh, Jonathan Edwards pastored a church in Massachusetts, and then later on, he went to the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University, to serve as president there. 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, along with some other names you might recognize, John Wesley and George Whitfield, they were all leaders in what was called the First Great Awakening. This revival that happened in the United States in the 1720s and 1730s where there were all these mass revival meetings and, and uh, church uh, gatherings that would happen where, where countless people came to know the Lord. Jonathan Edwards married Sarah Pierpoint and together they had 11 children. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had these 11 children and at some point someone studied their uh, generational legacy down to five generations. And here is what they discovered about the legacy of Jonathan Edwards. It says, Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one vice president, that was his grandson, Aaron Burr, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, three college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. So 11 children and then five generations down, that is what they discovered about the legacy of Jonathan Edwards. Then they went on to add this. Barring one grandson who married a questionable character, the family has not cost the state a single dollar. Uh, he passed down a legacy where these children and grandchildren and great and great great, they all were successful in life and did not cost the state a single dollar. Now in this study, they also happened to study the legacy of a man named Max Jukes. The reason they study Max Jukes is because uh, a researcher went to a New York State penitentiary and there he discovered that 42 of the inmates were all descendants of Max Jukes. Max Jukes lived about the same time as Jonathan Edwards, lived in New York in the same area of the country as Jonathan Edwards, and had descendants that followed him. And here was the study of Max Jukes. Max Jukes did not believe in Christian training. He married a girl of like character. From this union, men have studied 1,026 descendants, five generations of descendants, 300 of them died prematurely. 100 were sent to the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. 190 were public prostitutes. There were 100 drunkards. The family cost the state $1.2 million. Every one of us in this room will leave a legacy. There will come a day that you take your last breath on this earth and you will leave a legacy to the generations coming behind you. The only question is, will it be a legacy like Max Jukes or will it be a legacy like Jonathan Edwards?